The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. It's been two weeks since I've been here. I feel like it's been forever since I've been with you. I want to thank everyone who came to help us move into our new house. And as, even though it didn't go as well as we thought it would have gone, uh, we'll just leave it at that. Uh, it's really cool because um, this new house has an entire in-law suite that we are converting into a LJC office. And so we'll actually have our own office space now for all of our, for our elder meetings, our coordinator meetings, our team leadership meetings, place where we can come and meet as we continue to lead in, uh, in what God's doing here in Crozet. So it's very exciting. We've been walking through this little letter that Paul has written to this little tiny in, inconsequential town called Colossae. He's writing it to these believers who most people say Paul never even met. And I know it's been a couple of weeks since I've been here, and maybe you've been in and out throughout the course of the week, so I'll just remind us of what's going on. Like many of us today, this young church got off track. They got off track. Uh, what was happening was they, were, they, they got off track by listening to people who said that Jesus was great, but they needed more to really experience the fullness of of life. Jesus was good to get them to a certain point, but that they needed to try harder to do better in order to gain victory over certain things that were still uh, happening in their life and in their situations. And you know, it sounds a lot like Christianity today in America, and not just in America, around the world. When we were in Guatemala a couple weeks ago, we ran into this same thinking. Often we talk more about techniques to manage sin and to modify behavior than we do spending time talking about the reality of what Jesus has done. For often we spend more time teaching each other, encouraging each other to just work harder and try better than we do really dwelling on the reality of what Jesus has done in us and for us. So I think it's very appropriate for us to walk through Colossians to see what Paul is screaming with his pen to them and screaming to us today, saying Jesus is not just uh, the way in, but he is the everything. One, one pastor says that Jesus plus nothing is everything. Uh, so Paul starts off, I'll just remind us of what's going on. Paul starts off with his typical hello. He reminds them of the gospel that they began to believe when this guy named Epaphras started sharing it with them. And he reminds them that they started in this way of Christ and they don't need to go anywhere else because they started in Christ and they're in Christ and they don't need to go anywhere else. And he cuts to the chase. You see, they were believing that Jesus wasn't enough, as I just said. And so they cut to the chase. Paul cuts to the chase in chapter uh, 1, verse 15, and he starts making these colossal statements about who Jesus is. He's reminding them or maybe even explaining to them for the very first time who Jesus is, just how big and how grandeur he is. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to just read through. This won't be on the screen until we get to chapter 3 where we pick up today. I'm going to read a couple of excerpts from chapter 1 and chapter 2 just to help us all this morning get into context of what's going on. And as I read this, I want you to ask the question in your mind, is, what, is this Jesus that Paul is presenting big enough or do we need more? Is he big enough to take care of it all, or is there something else? Is he big enough not just to get us in the door and get us seated at the right hand of God, but is he also big enough to actually work in us and through us to manifest himself into this world, or do we need to add things from the outside in to make sure that happens? Is Jesus enough? 
So as I read this, I just want you to, I just want you to, to flow with what Paul is saying. He says, for God, starting in verse 13 of chapter 1, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the beloved Son. The beloved Son, Jesus, the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of all of our sin. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, who? Jesus, by him, all things were created, both things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Him being, work with me, him being Jesus. He, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things are held together. He, Jesus, is the head of the church, the body of Christ, and he is the beginning of everything. He is the firstborn from the dead ones so that he himself, Jesus, will have first place over all. For it was the Father's good pleasure for the fullness, for fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through his cross, through him, Paul says, whether things on earth or things in heaven. He, Jesus, has now reconciled you to his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. We proclaim him admonishing every man, and we'll come to that word admonishing when we get to chapter 3, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, walk in him. How did you receive him? You received him by faith. So now we walk by faith. And that's the big trick. That's what's happening with the people in Colossians. They receive by faith, but now they're wanting to walk by sight instead of by faith. And Paul continues to say, for by him, for in him, him, Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. And he is the head over and ruler over all authority. And in him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of him who is Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you and your tra- the, you were dead in the transgressions and the circumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which is the law, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, having triumphed over them through him. So let me ask you a question. Is Jesus enough? I mean, it sounds like it to me. Sometimes we read, we just walk through these little passages, a little chunk at a time, and we don't see the big picture. Man, Paul is painting, these are some colossal statements about what Jesus has done. He goes on to say, if you have died with him, Christ, to the elementary principles of this world, why, as if you are living in the world, do you submit yourself to the decrees of the world, to the rules of the world, like don't taste, don't touch, don't, 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 don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. These are matters which have, sure, an appearance of wisdom. that They seem to make good sense, but the reality, he says, they are of no value in the indulgence of resisting the indulgence of your flesh. Verse 1, chapter 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with him, Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand 
of God. When we were going through the book of uh, Genesis a couple weeks ago, a month, month or two ago, we saw that the ark was the very picture of Jesus himself. Do you, do you recall how many windows were in the ark? This isn't in the notes. This is free. How many, how many windows were in the ark? One. Genesis 6 or 7. You can read it on your own. And that ark was 18 inches below the roof so that Noah and his family, a picture of being in Christ, they were not to look around at the circumstances surrounding them, but they were to look solely above. That's us today in Christ. We seek the things that are above, not worrying about the things around us. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, where he is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your mind on the things above, not the things of this earth. For you have died, listen to this church, for you have died and your life is hidden with him, Christ, in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. I think we need to ask a question here, why? This sets us us up for chapter verse 5 where we're starting today. Why? Why will we be revealed with him when he's revealed? Why? Why will we be revealed with him? Can I just answer the question really quickly? It's because we are one with him. Something has happened. Something huge has happened. We've been made new. You realize that in John 17, right before, just hours before the arrest, the day before the cross, Jesus prays to the Father. He says, Father, may what I do tomorrow result in them, those who believe, being one as we are one. Jesus is praying that what he does on on the cross, his burial, and the resurrection will result in you and I who believe in Jesus being one with Jesus and the Father, just as Jesus and the Father were already one. And so what Paul is saying, look, you are so new, you are so new that you're so new that when Christ is revealed, guess who also is going to be revealed? You, because you are one with him. You've been made new. Now, think of it this way. You and Christ, me and Christ, we are distinguishable, okay? I am not Christ and Christ is not me, okay? I'm still Walt. I'm a new Walt, but I am distinguishable from Christ. I am as holy as he is because he has given me his holiness. I'm as sanctified as he is because he's given me his sanctification. I am as righteous as he is by his grace because he has given to as a gift of righteousness. It is all by his grace, not by a single thing that we could ever do on our own. His grace is a gift. His mercy is a gift. But we are not God. We are not deity as Jesus is. We're distinguishable, but listen, we are inseparable. We are inseparable. There is nothing that will ever separate you from the very love of God. So when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, you will be revealed because you who believe in him are one with him. This is what the Colossians just couldn't believe. They couldn't buy into it. Paul is saying, you, you began by believing unbelievable stuff, Now, I'm begging you to continue believing unbelievable stuff that you and Christ have become one, distinguishable. The bride, you, Christ, the groom, but inseparable, inseparable. And verse 5, picking up where we go today. Therefore, okay, so because of all this, therefore, 
Because the old has died, because all your sin has been forgiven, because you are no longer bound to the law, because you've been made new, therefore because you have been raised with Christ, because you are now one with him, when he's revealed, you're revealed because you're now one in him, because you're now holy. What else did he say? You're blameless. He said you're beyond reproach because of these things. Look at this. He says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, to impurity, to passion, to evil desire, to greed, which amounts fundamentally to idolatry. Now, I know if you have your Bible open, some of your translations might read something like, put to death the deeds of the, what is earth, put to death what is earthly in you. And when I was studying through this, the difficulty is that that translation leaves out a very important word. Okay, I know we're all grammaticans, right? We all, we're all, is that even a word, Jessica, grammaticans? We all love grammar, okay? We're all grammarologists, right? How about that one? We're all grammarologists. But there's a very specific word that Paul uses as a direct object, uh, mele, Greek, melos, nominative, accusative case, mele. And it's a direct object. And that word means members, body parts, body parts. Paul uses the same word in Romans 7 when he says that sin lives in my mele, my my body parts, my flesh, my limbs. And this, this typical translation just leaves that word out altogether. It says, uh, uh, I just read it a second ago, uh, wherever it went, therefore put to death what is earthly in you. That's not what the original language says. The original language literally says, put to death your limbs that are on this earth. That sounds weird, right? That sounds weird. Are we supposed to conquer sin by cutting off body parts and putting them into flames? Is that what Paul is teaching us? No. That's why I have the New American Standard translation here, which is very consistent with what Paul also says in Romans chapter 6, which is, therefore, because something so huge has changed, because something so enormous has happened, because you are so new, even consider your own bodies, Malay, dead to sin. Don't even consider just you, the new you, the real you, dead to sin. But something so huge has happened that we can even consider our own bodies dead to sin. Paul teaches us that the body is not evil. Paul teaches that the body is an instrument. This is also in Romans 6 and 7. The body is just but an instrument. It's an instrument for godliness when Christ is being manifest through us, but it's an instrument for sinliness, Sinliness? Sinfulness. When sin, I'm sorry, is being manifest through us. So if Craig were to make a bad chord, right, on, is that even proper uh, music terms, make a bad chord, right, play a bad chord on his guitar, would it make sense for Craig to cut off the neck of the guitar? No, the guitar is just the instrument. So what Paul is saying is consider even the members of your flesh dead, dead to sin dead to this wickedness. Consider your bodies even dead. Verse 6, for it is because of these things that literally the wrath of God comes. It's because of this wickedness, this evilness, this ridiculous sinfulness that God's wrath comes in the first place. So we must consider even the members of our body dead to this stuff. What do you think would happen if the Colossian believers really believed that they were dead to sin and alive to Christ? What do you think would happen? What do you think that, that would happen with these believers if they continued to believe that they had actually been made new and were, in fact, one with Christ? 
What do you think would happen if they truly considered themselves rescued, truly rescued, and even their bodies had died to sin? So, so is Paul trying to trick them into believing something that, that isn't? Is he trying to brainwash them? Is, is he trying to, to be, get them to believe in some sort of mysterious, mystical hocus-pocus? Right? Is, is he trying to get them to buy into some sort of Zen thinking that if they just believe something hard enough that isn't real, that it'll modify their behavior eventually? No, no, no. Paul is begging them, and I think us today, to believe the truth, to believe the truth about what Jesus has actually done. You see, Jesus wasn't just a good teacher, though he was a good teacher. He wasn't just uh, a, a mover and a shaker, okay? Though he was. He wasn't just a nice guy, though he was. Listen, Paul's made it very clear. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. He is the very one whose words spoke through the darkness of eternity past and creation bursts forth. This isn't just some guy who showed up one day and said, hey, I got an idea. This is God made flesh. He is the Savior of man. He is the one who bore all of our sin upon himself releasing us from Satan's very grip. He is the king of kings who reigns superior over all things, and he is the Lord of lords at whose name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He is the lover of our souls. He is the one whose love for us is so grand and so uh, dynamic that we'll never understand it fully this side of glory. His love for us is so that he would willingly leave the 99 to come and find you. His love for you, read Luke 15 on your own, is such that he gladly rejoices. He rejoices, not the angels. He rejoices in the presence of angels because of even one lost sinner who comes to him. He, Luke 15, is the one who loves us with the love that he longingly looks down the road for those who come to him, and he gladly ropes, wraps his robe of righteousness around them. He gladly places the ring of sonship on his finger, and he brings them into his house and says, that which is lost is now found. That's the Jesus we're talking about. We're, Paul is begging these guys, and I'm begging us, to believe in the reality of what Jesus has actually done. He's not asking them to believe in some sort of mysterious hocus-pocus. He's begging them and us today to believe in the reality. Yes, an unseen reality, but a reality nonetheless of what Jesus has done. Jesus has made us new. He's made us new. Somebody can say hallelujah, somebody can say thank you, somebody can say glory to God, but he's made us new. We're not what we once were. Now, I know we can't see that, at least I can't, but I think Paul is saying, guys, don't just start by faith and then go back to sight. He's saying you started with faith, continue by faith, continue believing what you can actually see because it's not unreal. It's more real, he says, what is it, at the end of 2 Corinthians, uh, what is it, 4? It's more real than what we actually can see. Wow. In verse 7, he says, and you in them, in them, this, these sins, right? In them, you also once walked when you were living in them. Okay, I used to live, one, I once lived in Knoxville, Tennessee. Where do I no longer live? Knoxville, Tennessee. I, Neil Armstrong, I almost said I, Neil Armstrong once walked on the moon. Where does Neil Armstrong right now, as far as I know, 
not walk. I didn't call him this morning, but where, where, where is he not walking right now? On the moon. This word once is very, very specific. It's very specific. He's saying, you were there once, but you are no longer there. You are no longer there. This is good news. The good news of Christ is that you and I who believe in Jesus, listen, you're not going to believe this at first, I promise. You and I no longer, listen, you no longer walk in sin. You and I who believe in Jesus no longer live in sin. Now, you might say, okay, that's the last straw. Listen, I'm just reading what Paul wrote. Get mad at him, not at me, okay? We no longer live in this. You see, the religious trap is that the Colossian believers and so many of us today think we are still living and walking in sins as we commit sins. And the harder we try to get out of them is how we gain victory over this. And so we create these religious systems of rules of of don't touch, don't taste, don't even handle the stuff of this wickedness. We create these rules thinking that we can live up to them in order to get out of this walking and living in sin. But listen, the whole point of Paul's letter to these Colossian believers is you have died. You've died and you've been raised with Christ and you no longer walk where you once did. You no longer live where you once did. You are now living and walking in who? Christ. Now let me ask you a question. If you're living and walking in Christ, is Christ walking in sin? No. He took care of it. He took it away. First John 3, 5, Jesus came to take away sins. This is the glorious good news of the gospel. Jesus has shed his blood to rescue us, to redeem us, to purchase us to himself. Now, before someone starts trusting in Christ, yeah, you better believe it. Till 1993, you better believe it. I was walking and living in sin. I was married to it. But listen, the sin isn't even the worst part. What's the wages of sin? Somebody tell me death. See, that's, if I can say it this way, that's even worse. That's the, that's, the, that's the consequence of sin, is death. But Jesus has changed all of that. He took your sin upon himself, and he died with you. He was buried with you, so that in his resurrection, you who believe in him are now raised to life in him. Sin, death, your old man, and Jesus, all of it went into the tomb, but only Jesus raised from the dead, and your new life that he calls into being, which did not used to be in being, is now raised to life, Romans 4. Now, do you and I still sin? Well, I can't speak for yourselves, right, yourself. I speak for me. Yeah, I still sin. I still sin daily. It hurts my heart when I do it. I still sin. I'm not saying that I don't sin, all right? Maybe you don't. I don't know. But I know I still do. Commit sins probably daily. But here's the beauty of what's happened. You and I no longer walk nor live in sin. Christ bore all our sin once and for all so that we can bear him forever. We will never, ever walk in anything other than Christ himself. Please don't take sin lightly, guys. I think that's what's happening. The American church is taking sin very, very, very lightly. If you, as a believer, think that when you sin, you're just sort of separated from God's presence in some sort of way until you get your act together and work your way back to him, listen, friends, you're taking sin way too lightly. The consequence, the penalty of sin is not temporal separation from God until you work your way back to him. The consequence for sin is what? 
death. Don't take sin lightly. The penalty for sin is death. And Jesus took our sin. He took our death so that we could have forever life in Christ. He has taken it from us and given us his righteousness. Sin is very, very serious. It's very serious. It took the very life of Jesus on the cross in order to redeem us from the condemnation of our death. But if Jesus rose, and do you believe he rose? Say yes. If Jesus rose, if you believe it, say yes. If Jesus rose and you believe it, say yes. I hear the baby louder than I hear somebody. If Jesus rose and you believe it, say yes. Yes. If he rose, then he won. Yes. If he rose, then he won. And if he won, who lost? Sin and death. Don't take sin lightly. Don't take sin lightly. It took his very life in order to redeem you from it. And it has been removed from you, as Jim said, as far as the east, to the west. In the new covenant, God said, I will remember your sin no more. No more. Jesus is your lover. He is your Lord. He is your king. He is your savior. And his eternal life is now yours. So Paul's reminding them, yeah, you used to walk in this junk, but you don't walk in this anymore. You used to live in this junk, but you don't live in it anymore. We've been made new. Verse 8, but now you also must put them all aside. This is referring back to all those sins he listed. Put them all aside. And he's even going to list out some more right here. He says, put them all aside. Before we go any further, I want you to ask a question in your heart. Why? Why? Why are, is Paul begging these believers and us today to put this junk aside? Why? Is it to get God to love us more than he already does? Well, I thought Romans 5.8 said that while we were still sinners, Christ already loved, God already loved us. Well, I don't think that's right. Is it in order to get Christ to, to, to live more real in our lives? Well, I thought that we had Ricky preach this couple weeks ago. We are already complete in Christ. We're already full in him. I don't think that's right. Maybe, it's, maybe we need to put these things off in order for the Spirit of God to really comfort us more than we already were. Well, how in the world could he have ever comforted us in the first place when sin, we were already sold into sin slavery? Why is Paul saying put this stuff off? And before I just give you my two cents, I want the Spirit of God to reveal this to you. And I'm going to read these things that he says, put these off. Anger, rage, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Why put these off? Why? I hope you're hearing what Paul's been saying. You've been made new. You've been made new. So why put all this old stuff off? I'm going to sort of personify this stuff in the idea of clothing, garments, okay? Why put this off? Listen. Simply put, my two cents, because I don't believe these garments, these clothes, anger, rage, malice, envy, all this stuff, I don't think they fit anymore. I don't think they fit anymore. They don't fit you any longer. They used to fit. They used to fit when you walked in and lived in them, but they don't fit anymore. Something's changed. Something's very different 
What's different? Is the sin any different? No, Paul's the first to say, no, sin still lives in my members. So I don't think the sin is any different. Maybe Jesus is different, and so these don't fit anymore. Well, I'm pretty sure the Scripture says that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I don't think Jesus has changed. Then what is it? What? Who has changed to where the former garments no longer fit? Somebody tell me. You! You have changed. You've been made new. You've changed. You're no longer wicked at the core. You're now righteous at the core. If you're a Christian, please stop saying that. I know you already, you're already maybe reading some of this already, Jim, in your comments earlier. Please stop saying that your heart is wicked. I know Jeremiah said that in the Old Testament. He said the heart is, if you're a Hebrew scholar, Jacob. Your heart is deceitful. The heart is wicked. Yes, it is. At birth, at your physical birth, your heart is desperately wicked and no one can know it. But at the core of the gospel is that spiritual heart surgery has taken place and Jesus has cut out that old dead heart and has replaced it with a brand new heart. So these things that used to fit, they don't fit anymore. They don't fit anymore. If you are new, you are holy, you are righteous, you are one with Christ. If you believe in him, these old garments of filth, these old garments of sin, these old garments of wickedness, they simply don't fit the new you. And then he emphatically says in verse 9, he emphatically, he says, and do not lie to one another. I wonder, why does he really emphasize this? In the Greek, it literally says, stop lying. Like this big, huge, like red, like flashing lights in my mind. Stop lying. I think he's emphasizing this is because... This is what they're doing to one another. They're lying to each other about the reality of the gospel. They're lying to each other that Jesus isn't actually enough, and they need to add more into the mix in order to really get what God wants for them. He's saying, don't lie to one another. He specifies one another. Does that mean it's okay to go out and lie to unbelievers? No. He's just... he's. Addressing a specific issue in a specific church, you guys are lying to each other, you're misrepresenting the gospel, stop it. Since, or your translation might say, seeing, seeing you laid aside the old man with its evil practices. That's past tense. You laid aside. The moment that you started trusting in Jesus, the old man was laid aside. You have laid it aside along with its evil practices. And you have, verse 10, put on You have put on, past tense, if you're a believer, you have put on the new man. The new man, this is the new creation. This is the new heart. Listen, this is the reality of the new you. The new man is not the old man that's kind of dust off and spit shined and like, you know, made to look a little bit better to go another, you know, 10,000 miles. That's not the new you. Paul uses a very specific word in verse 10 when he says the word new. This is new as if it never existed before in the past. A brand new, in fact, Romans 4 says that God is the one who calls into being that which did not exist. That's the new you, the new creation. Jesus is the new creator. It's a very specific word. It never existed before. And the awesome part of this is that the new you, look at this, it never gets old. He says, I put on, put, uh, and you have put on the new self who is being renewed. That means that four gazillion years from now, the new you, It's still going to be as new as it was the day you first trusted. The new you will never get old. Man, that's pretty cool. The new you never is going to wear out. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians. My flesh is getting weak, weaker and weaker and weaker. But the new man is being strengthened day by day, day by day. 
The new you is never going to become an old you because it's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one, capital O, Christ, who created him. In this new you, verse 11 says that uh, it's a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek or Jew or circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And Paul is here helping us understand again and again that this new kingdom, this new thing, it's not like what we've experienced here on earth. It's not between Jew and Gentile, between free and, and, and masters and all this stuff. We are all one in Christ. He's the bridegroom. We are the bride. So he says, put all this stuff off, and I've had a few more minutes, starting verse 12, and we'll wrap up. So we know this stuff doesn't fit. The behaviors of the old man, the actions of those don't fit anymore. So what does fit? It's a good question, right? And then he goes on to say, this is what fits. Verse 12. So those who have been chosen, literally called out by God, of God. And look how he describes those who've been called out by God. Somebody read those three words. A little bit louder. If you're saved, you're holy. It's another hard one to believe, Walt. If you're saved, you're beloved. You're new. You really are new. Now, if you're like me, I don't feel holy, especially when I sin. I don't feel beloved. But listen, even Boston got it right when they say it's more than a feeling, right? It's more than a feeling. Feelings are important, but it's more than a feeling. Listen, it's a reality. It's a fact. It's a fact that you, if you are saved, you are new. You are holy. If you are saved, you are beloved. If you are saved, you are not, listen, a sinner saved by grace. Stop lying. I echo Paul. Stop lying. Stop saying that you're a sinner saved by grace. You are not a sinner saved by grace. The identity of sinner ended the day you started believing, and you are now holy. You are now beloved. Your identity is now Jesus himself, holy, righteous, pure, beloved. The same thing Craig was just talking about, the identity of his wife. So what fits someone who's holy and beloved? Well, the fruit of Christ's spirit fits. The old garments of sin and rebellion, they don't fit anymore. They fit the old man, but they don't fit the new man. The garments of Christ's spirit are what fit, and they fit perfectly. And this is also listed out, Paul, in Galatians chapter 5. But quickly, he says, um, heart of compassion, that's what fits. Kindness, that fits. Humility, that fits. Gentleness and patience, or a better translation, long-suffering, that fits. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against someone, you know what fits? What fits is for you to forgive them just as the Lord has forgiven you. That is what fits. Listen, these are not strange clothes for you to wear. These are not strange clothes that you're going to need to grow into as a believer. These are not strange clothes that you're going to need to take to some sort of spiritual tailor and have them adjusted to fit you. These clothes fit you now in Christ because they fit Christ. And you are one with him. This is really good news, guys. This is really good news. This is called the gospel. These new clothes are natural because your life is new. 
And above all these things, verse 14, he says, put on love. Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Literally, love is the bond of perfection. Paul says that faith, hope, and love, out of these, the greatest of these is love. He says this in 1 Corinthians 13. You ever wonder why? Why is it great? I mean, faith is important. Hope is important. Why love? Why is the greatest love? Well, listen, one day I will see Jesus face to face, and I will no longer have the need for faith because I'll see him. One day I will be in his presence, in the very presence of the kingdom of God fully, and I will no longer hope and long for it. Well, hope will end one day. But love, it never fades. It never ends. Love is the very bond that has driven God to bring you to himself through his son Jesus, resulting in your perfection. Put on love. Last two verses. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It's word rule. It's the idea of govern. Let it make the call. It's like a referee. Let the, rule, let the peace of Christ be your umpire. Let it tell you. Let it show you. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. The peace of Christ. You know what ought to control us, to rule us, to govern us, to guide us? The reality that because of Jesus, we are now at peace with God. Not fear. Not anxiety. Not, man, I hope I did enough Bible reading this week. The peace of God. He says, let the word of Christ, verse 16, that is, let the reality of Christ richly dwell within you. Let the reality of this, what he's done, let that dwell within you and and help each other. He says, in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing. This word admonishing is a really cool word. It means putting it into your heads. Isn't that neat? He's saying, let the word of Christ, the reality of what he's done, help each other by putting it into each other's heads. Renewal of the mind. How do we do that? Well, he says, here's some ideas. With psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. So Paul is saying, you know what? Here's a way. Here's a way to massage this truth of the gospel, what Jesus has done, your newness of life into you. Sing songs about it. In a moment, we're going to sing a song called, uh, This is Who I Am. We're singing it for a specific reason, because we need to believe who we now am, who we now are. In the last verse, he says, whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Meaning, whatever you do with each other, all of it needs to be pointed around this reality of the newness of life that you have. Doing it all in the name of this Jesus who has redeemed you, he has saved you, he has called you, he has changed you, he has made you new. So our journey marker this morning, this is like the, if we could boil all this down into a simple thought and walk out the door, it's this. Jesus has new clothes for the new you. And listen, they fit. They fit. They fit, and they don't fit your sin. They don't fit sin that's alive in you, in your flesh. No. They don't fit the old man, but the old man is gone. They fit the new you. So here's the crisis of faith this morning. Are you going to enter into a relationship with Jesus by faith and then try to continue it by works? In the words of Liam Neeson, good luck. Actually, somebody told him that, didn't they? Well, you know what I mean. 
Good luck. Good luck. Good luck. How about we just continue in the same manner in which we came in? By faith. By faith. So I am begging you today, as Paul is, to believe the truth about yourself, that you're new. That you're new. And the old clothes, they don't fit anymore, so let's throw them off. And let's realize the new clothes, the very spirit of Christ, the very fruit of his spirit. The clothes that fit him fit you because your life is hidden where? In him. If you don't believe in Jesus this morning, I, man, why? Why? He's standing here saying, I'm yours. Believe in me. I will make you new. I will make you new. Father, we come to you as our band comes up. We ask, Father, that you would help us, God. Help us to believe this good news of what you've done. Father, it is hard to believe apart from you showing us your truth. And Father, there might be many religiously-driven men and women like myself as a really covering legalist who are struggling with this message of the gospel. Paul says that to the religious, this is nonsense. Father, so much religiosity in us that we hear this and we think this is nonsense. I'm not new. Look at me. And Father, I just hear Paul begging us as a church, you begging us as our loving Father to live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. So, Father, as we stand in a moment, we sing this song, This is Who I Am. I've been born again. The cross is my defense. I've been made new. God, I pray that based on what your scripture has taught us this morning, that this would admonish us. This truth of Christ and his re- the reality of what he's done would be massaged into our minds, would be placed into our minds. So the reality of what's the completed work of Christ in us, that we are new, the old man is gone, a new has come, that that reality would become a reality in our minds, which are being renewed. So Father, we just thank you. Thank you for what you've done. I would like to say, forgive us for how much we don't believe this good news, but God, you've already forgiven us from even that. Thank you. We just say as a church, wow, and thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Richard and I will be in the back if anyone would like to come and talk. Um, If you want to know more about what it means to believe in Jesus. Maybe you have a sin that you've been dealing with for a really, really long time and you're at your end and you, you don't know what to do. i got something brand new to offer you. How about beginning to believe that those clothes don't fit? There's a whole new wardrobe, a whole new you with new clothes that do fit because of what Jesus has done. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, 
visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.